I want you to turn, if you've got a Bible, to Exodus chapter 14. We are looking at this incredible moment, one of the, probably the most, one of the most famous moments of the book of Exodus, and this, this great story of liberation that the people of Israel go through. If you've been with us, I've, I've looked at this over the different weeks, over the last uh, six months, really. Um, and today we are looking at this moment of crossing the Red Sea. It's a moment of, ju- of judgment. It's a moment of jeopardy. It's a moment of, some might say, unnecessary jeopardy. God has brought the people of Israel to this place where they are in front of the Red Sea, and behind them, the army of Egypt are coming and pursuing them. And in a sense, this is not the normal way you would have gone if you wanted to go, you want to take the people out of Egypt to what we now call the land of Israel, or uh, what they, you know, to go to the promised land. You wouldn't necessarily need to go this way. But God has brought them to this place, this place of jeopardy, so that they might see his hand, his mighty hand, rescuing them through the waters of judgment. And that is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the the God who fights for you. The God who fights for you. So turn with me, Exodus chapter 14, verse 5. They've left, they've left Egypt. They've, you know, last week we looked at the Passover. Uh, they, they've, they've, made, they've made their way out of Egypt. They're, they're walking just on the border of Egypt, on the kind of edge of the wilderness. And, um, and this is what happens. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, all and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, so this is the moment of jeopardy, the great army of Pharaoh bearing down, kind of reputed and feared, got other, other people, Canaanite people, write about the Egyptian army and the, the kind of the chariot, the famed chariots. This, you should be feeling fear with the people of Israel in this moment. When, the, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes and the Egyptians, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it be For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're regretting everything. They're saying, we shouldn't have even come with you. We shouldn't have stayed in Egypt under slavery with Pharaoh rather than bringing us out to die. And this is what Moses said. This is what we're going to focus on today. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Another translation, to be still. 
And jump down to verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God's presence has been going with them as they've come out of the land of Egypt, a great pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud, and that cloud goes between them. God stands between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, a very visible metaphor that he is protecting them. And it goes on, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They're getting it now. I mean, we thought they would have got it by now. Surely the, the last 10 plagues we've seen again and again, the Lord fights for the people of Israel, but they're getting it. It goes on. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea shore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. A sobering moment, a sobering moment where we see the full judgment of God on the people of Egypt, the destruction of this great force that has dogged the people of Israel for 400 years. And right from the beginning, I want you to see the lesson that God wants us, the people of God, he wants the people of Israel to learn at that moment, and that is he wants them to learn to trust him. Remember I said this is an unnecessary moment of jeopardy. He could have just led them really directly from Egypt, kind of across the, the, the short, southern shore of the Mediterranean, to the land of what we currently call Israel. It would have been a short journey. But no, he takes them via the Red Sea. He takes them to this moment of jeopardy where they see their, their own death. They're trapped between the armies and the waters in front of them. And in a great miracle, a great moment, God leads them through through the waters of judgment and to freedom, to understand, to see that he is the Lord that fights for them. All the way through, as we go through this this next phase of the book of Exodus, you will see that the Lord wants to teach the people how to follow him. Remember, they've been slaves, they've been under an old master, and now they they are now God's people and, the, and it's almost like lesson number one, you need to know if you are a follower of God, is you need to learn to trust me. 
The, very, the, the kind of basic lesson he wants to teach them all the way through the pilgrimage, uh, the, the pilgrimage through the wilderness, as he provides manna in the desert, as he provides water from the rock, again and again, and the Lord wants them to see, you need to trust me. See, I am the God who fights for you. And really what this is about doing is enlarging our view of God. I wonder what you're, if you want to think about what is God like you know, there's that old truism. It says, the Bible says, man is made in the image of God. We make God in our image. And so we kind of think, well, we, we, God is a bit like us, isn't he? We think he should be kind of a nice guy. He should be uh, kind of moderately, slightly opposed to evil, but, but not, not, not aggressive like this, not pouring out judgment like this. We prefer if he was a little bit nicer, a little bit more passive. But what we see in this passage, and we've seen it last week when we, the death of the firstborn sons of the, uh, the people of Egypt, is that God is deeply opposed to evil. He's deeply opposed to evil. His, this judgment that he's bringing is a judgment on the forces of evil that have enslaved the people of Israel for 400 years. You know, Edmund Burke, I'm going to paraphrase it, but this uh, British philosopher, um, historian, uh, said something like, um, evil flourishes when good men do nothing. Evil flourishes when good men do nothing. The God who is passively watching evil in the world and is not deeply opposed to that evil is no good God at all. No God who should be feared. No God who should be awed. No God who should be worshipped unless he is opposed to evil. So this is about enlarging our view of God, of seeing the reality that this is the God who fights for you. In, in the, later on in chapter 15, he talks about the Lord is a man of war. In another translation, the Lord is a warrior. See, I, the Lord wants us to see his mighty power, the sense that he is a warrior on our behalf. See, when you understand this, when you understand that the Lord is a mighty warrior, when you understand that you, have, you worship a God who fights for you, it's about, you will walk differently. You will restore a new posture, a new way of being. You Christians go from living a kind of posture of passivity or defeat to a posture of confidence. Not confidence in themselves, but confidence in the Lord who brings victory. They're people who stand firm. Who are not, it means that they, they react to the trials of life in a radically different way than they otherwise might or than they did before, before they followed Christ. You know, he says, be silent, be still. Think about how counterintuitive that instruction is. As the army of Egypt bears down on the people of Israel, as they, as they see the chariots come over the horizon, Moses says, be still, be silent. It's that kind of counterintuitive response that the people of God have to all the sorts of troubles and trials and difficulties that we face, that we, that we have a new peace, a new trust, a new calm confidence in the provision and power and majesty of the living God. That means we, we don't thrash about anxiously. Now, we'll come back to this and talk about that anxiety is a, a part of everyday life for many people, not to... Not to deny the reality of anxiety in our lives, but to say actually in Christ, in, in, the, in remembering this vision of who God is, we have an antidote to the, the kind of turmoil within our hearts, to, to the everyday realities of trials we will all face, all the difficulties that might otherwise cause us to fear, the fear of loss, the fear of failure, the fear of uh, some bad thing happened to you behind every corner lurks some new evil that might befall you tomorrow. 
The Christian can react counterintuitively to that and can actually be still in the face of danger because they worship a God who fights for them. The problem is that we so easily forget this. And by the way, this is exactly the same with these people. I mean, it's incredible. They've just seen the Lord's power. Time and again, these plagues and these miracles, just before this passage, the 10 great plagues, the display of God's power. In fact, just before the passage I read to you, he even told the people of Israel, he told Moses, we assume he tells the people of Israel, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He said, I'm creating this situation. I'm going to draw Pharaoh out. I'm going to, he's going to think you're wandering. It says, uh, verse 3, they're wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. He takes them on this indirect route that Pharaoh looks and says, ah, I've got them. I was such a fool to let them go. I'm going to go and get them. And all the time, the Lord is entrapping Pharaoh in this great moment of destruction and judgment. So he's told them this is going to happen. He's told them he's going to get glory over Pharaoh, and yet they've forgotten. How easily we forget the Lord who fights for us. How easily we forget his majesty, his power, his presence in our lives. And we live as if we were the people of Israel going through the wilderness but without God's presence with us. You know, this great picture, it's just in chapter 13, is a picture of the, the, the kind of the Lord's cloud going before them and a pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. There's a sense of this awesome, visible presence of God that they know that he is with them. And that's true of us as Christians. We know that we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. We know that we have a sovereign Father who's over us, but we live as if he's not there. We live as practical atheists, forgetting his power and majesty in our lives. And so I want to, in a sense, this morning, restore our vision of the power of God, restore our vision of the God who fights for us. And I want to show you that you have a God who fought for you. This is about celebrating the victory of Christ on the cross. You have a God who fights for you. This is about knowing the presence and power of God's active work in your life now. And you have a God who will be victorious. This is about knowing the victory of Christ one day on his return to judge the living and the dead. You have a God who fought for you, you have a God who fights for you, and a God who will be victorious. First of all, you have a God who fought for you. What's incredible, and has genuinely blown me away as I've spent time studying this this week, is that this Red Sea moment is all about the person of Christ. This Red Sea moment, this moment of judgment, points to Christ taking our judgment on our, the, the judgment that we deserve on our behalf. And, he, and it's appointed to the way that Christ has made a way through judgment, de- pointing to his victory over sin and death. And so too, then it impels us to be a people who declare the victory of Christ in every part of our lives. So first of all, see that the way this is a story about Christ making a way through judgment. You see how Moses leads his people through the waters of judgment and brings them on the way to the promised land. Christ is a a new and better Moses who leads his people through judgment. Now, it's pretty obvious this is a passage about the judgment of God. This is just continuing the same theme, really, that we've seen in the plagues, that God is bringing judgment on those who oppose him, those who scorn at him and reject his authority and ignore him and mistreat those people who are made in his image, those precious people of Israel. He says, all people are made of God's image, not just people of Israel, but he's saying... I will bring about justice. I will bring a restitution. You th- so you threw the sons of Israel into the Nile. Remember the beginning of the book of Exodus? He, he, the people of Egypt throw the, the Hebrew boys into the Nile. You act, commit that great act of Genesis. I will bring judgment on you. 
See, water in the Bible is actually often a symbol of judgment. The book of uh, the story of Noah, the flood coming on the earth, is a story of God's judgment coming on a world that has rejected him and ignores him. Even the the, the Nile has come to represent death with the Hebrew boys being thrown into it. And yet, what we know is that Christ takes on the judgment that we deserve. In Mark uh, chapter 10, Jesus gives an incredibly uh, short allusion to this story. In Mark chapter 10, uh, he, he's asked by James and John if they can sit at his right hand. And he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What it's saying is the cross, this, this, this event points, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, this points to the central event of the Christian life, which is Christ dying on the cross. It's another one of the many pictures that God sets up through hundreds and thousands of years in advance to point to the moment of history when Christ comes on the cross. And Christ talks about, in that passage in Mark, he says, I'm going to drink the cup of judgment. I'm going to drink the, the cup of God's wrath on the, on the cross. But he's also talking about being baptized, and he's pointing back to this moment when the people of Israel were baptized into the water, so to speak. They go under the waters of judgment. What it's saying is, if you imagine this as a picture of Christ's death, it says, we were Egypt. We deserved death because of our posture of rebellion in our hearts, the way we've scoffed and ignored God, the way we've asserted our own authority over our lives rather than recognizing the right and proper authority of the living God, the way we've put two fingers up to God, so to speak. It says, we are Egypt, but Christ, the only perfect one, dove into the waters of judgment. He he dived into the judgment for us. He kind of soaked up that judgment on himself. So we go into the water like Egypt and we come out like Israel. We go in like Egypt, we come out like Israel. People who are, who are, who are now it, have found a way through judgment, not because of anything they've done, not because of anything they deserve, but because they follow one who has made a path, a way through the waters of judgment. Just as Moses walked through, made a path, and God's salvation, it literally describes in chapter 14, the word salvation, it's like a picture of the salvation we've received. And all we need to do, because of what Christ has done on the cross, is walk through that path. Put our faith in Christ, the invitation that Christ would make to any, anybody, whether you're a, not a Christian, who would say, come and receive the judge. Let me <laughs> receive the forgiveness that I have won for you by taking on the judgment that you deserve. What we've got to see is this picture is not just a picture of judgment, of salvation from judgment. It's also a picture of victory over sin and death. In verse 15, verse 1, it says, I will sing for the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. It's a picture of victory. It's saying the Lord has finally, truly defeated the Egyptians, the the evil and and source of evil and death that sought to destroy the people of Israel. Finally, he's conclusively destroyed that threat. So too, the cross of Christ is not just a moment of salvation. It's also a moment of victory. Just as the people of Israel can look on the seashore and see that the Egyptians have been killed, see them lying on the seashore. That's a visceral image, but it's a picture of utter defeat. So too, the Christian should be able to look back at the cross and say, Christ has defeated the power of sin and death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross is a moment of victory, a victory over the powers of death and sin and Satan that sought to destroy you, that had you 
enslaved, he's brought you freedom. He's destroyed those powers. The resurrection, at the moment of resurrection, Christ is risen after his death. He punches a hole through death. He puts an end to death so that all who believe in Christ will no longer suffer death forever, will experience eternal life with Christ. He's destroyed that great enemy, destroyed the great enemy of the fear of death that causes you know, health fads and uh, a desire to maximize your life and, and uh, live, live in some kind of way of trying to get everything because we all fear death. And it says, no, the Christian, the death, that great enemy of death has been destroyed through Christ's resurrection. It speaks of evil, of Satan in Colossians chapter 2. He speaks about Christ shame, putting to shame those forces of evil, satanic forces that sought to humiliate Christ. Actually, Christ shames them because the cross is a victory. And it's saying one day, Satan's days are, count, are, are numbered, so to speak. Satan's on the way out. He has no more... His victory is over, so to speak. His power over the world is over. That one day, Satan will be thrown down and have no influence on this world. Even sin. That, 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 that Christ's death on the cross is a kind of, means that you have died to your old life if you believe in him and put your trust in him. And sin is no longer the master of your life. So Christ is the great liberator. It's like you were hemmed in, like the people of Israel, with, with, with Satan behind you and sin before you and with no way out. One writer put it, no weapons with which to fight and we had no idea how to swim. Imagine that moment of, of both fear but also powerlessness that the people of Israel would have felt. It's saying that's where you were before Christ died for you. You were powerless to save yourself. You were powerless to defeat the power of sin that controlled you and influenced your life and, and in some way always made it your master. Say, no, now Christ has come to liberate you, to, get out, to take, bring you out of the, the waters of darkness. And your enemies, they lie on the shore so you can remember that they are dead. And what I want you to see really is that this story, this great story of salvation and liberation and, 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 and victory is not just an abstract story that sits over there, but it becomes our story as the people of God. We display Christ's victory with our lives. It's not just a story, it's something that's happened to us. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes back and refers back to this moment and describes it as a baptism. If you have been baptized, which if you're a Christian is, a, is the kind of first defining mark that you're a follower of Christ, you will remember that moment when you went under the waters. That moment when the waters overflowed over your head. You, I can remember that day years ago as the water overflowed over my head. It's that moment that you remember that the old man or woman died. The old man or woman was dead. As the waters of judgment flowed over you, your old man died and you came up out of the water. You were a new creation. Not that baptism made you a new creation, but baptism symbolized that reality that had taken place in your life. So this is not an abstract reality. This is saying you have gone through the waters with Christ. Christ has led you through out of judgment and you're no longer an old man. Uh, you're no longer the old man. You're no longer the old man living under the power of sin and death. You're now a new creation in Christ. So the way you display this victory is by saying, by showing that sin no longer has the, the, the kind of dominating power over your life than it used to. By saying, I have a new master, I've been liberated, I'm no longer under the power of sin and death, 
no longer heading for eternity away from God. I live. It's like Christ has, has put his victory flag on top of you, in you, so to speak. Imagine little flags, cocktail sticks, sticking over your body kind of thing. It's like Christ has said, this is my territory. I've won. You are the visible new creation that points one day to the reality when Christ will say over the whole world, when he comes back to judge the living and the dead, that he reigns, that all of this is mine. Right now, you are a visible picture of that reality. You are living in the now of the, of the, the future destruction of sin and death. So as you live a life that is seeking to be pure and holy, seeking a life to be seeking to be obedient to Christ, you are displaying the reality of Christ's victory in your life. Don't live as if the old man still lives. We will still face temptation in this life. We will still wrestle with temptation till our dying day, but that old man is dead. When temptation comes knocking on the door, you know, remember when you were a child, maybe some of you had this where someone would knock on the door and say, would, would, can Johnny come out to play? It's like when temptation comes knocking on the door saying, would, can, can Jeremy come and play with sin today? You say, no, the old man Jeremy's not here anymore. He doesn't play with temptation. The new man's here and he doesn't play with you. You're, you, you the old Jeremy's gone. He's not here anymore. The great antidote to sin in our lives is the knowledge that we are not the old men that we were. We're not the, the, the old, old man or woman in Christ. Even if you, by the way, have been a Christian all your life, that flesh, those desires, those are not who you are. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been brought through the rivers of judgment. Don't go back and be, live like an Egyptian again. Think about this. I want to read to you in Galatians chapter 5 the picture of sin. It's quite a challenging one, but I think it's a helpful one because it just reminds us. It says this, he, t- he gives them this list As if to say, this is not who you are now. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Probably not many of you struggle with that. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's saying, those old works of the flesh, they belong to the old man, but he's dead now. Don't go back to it. I love the way that that list of sin is not just the kind of big ticket items, the sexual immorality that that throbs before us, so to speak, as an obvious sin that, that some of us struggle with, but the little sins, the sin that lurks within your heart, the anger that you feel towards that colleague, that resentment that you feel towards that person who was your friend but then hurt you, and now you just slowly chew over that resentment in your heart, that envy. I mean, how easy is envy in a city like London as you walk past large skyscrapers and mansions and all those sorts of things, how, how the city is built on a culture of envy. Of, as you look at these lives, you aspire towards it and it makes you work harder and it gets to the top. And it, it kind of envy is, is at the center of the, the culture of this city in many ways, or the envy of that person's body and wanting to have a body like them. The, the, people, the, the works of the flesh are so ingrained in our society. But he says, no, you're not there anymore. You're a new creation. Or maybe you walk defeated by sin. Maybe you feel like the battle against sin is just too much. Well, the, the, unfortunately, often what happens when you feel like you're just going over through the motions again and again, fighting sin, is you feel like sin has the victory. 
And what this says is sin does not have the victory. It's a lie that so easily Satan would have you believe that you are controlled by sin, that there's nothing you can get out of this. And this says, no, the power of sin and death have been broken. Christ has been victorious. So we live lives that show Christ's victory. Doesn't matter. I don't mean for a second that you won't have a daily battle with sin. I don't mean for a second that you won't, as you go on in the Christian life, find layers and layers of sin in your life as different desires or emotions or things that drive you that you think, oh, actually, that's not really of Christ, is it? But that stuff, as it comes up, you're saying, that's not who I am now. So if you feel overrun by sin, if you feel like sin is like a, a weed, you know, my brother uh, found Japanese knotweed in his garden a, a few years ago uh, in Wandsworth. It, it kind of went all over, and it, Japanese knotweed like spreads, and it wrecks the, you know, it can wreck the foundations of a house. And the sense to which sometimes sin just feels like a weed that has just kind of permeated through the garden, to which we say, no, we found Christ, the great weed killer. We have, it need not permeate through the garden. It not, we not feel like it's defeated us because we have the power of Christ and his spirit in us to defeat sin. By the way, this also just puts a radical new vision on mission. It says, we as the people of God extend the victory of Christ in this city. That we, as we plant churches, you know, it's part of our dream in this church to plant churches around this city and perhaps beyond to, to see what we're doing as we plant churches is we're planting an outpost which is declaring the victory of Christ and drawing people out of their lives of defeat, controlled by sin and headed for an eternity away from God and drawing them into the victory of Christ that Christ has already won for them by his death on the cross. Suddenly, mission feels exciting again. Not that we're cowering in the corner, licking our wounds, waiting for Christ to come back, but we're extending the victory of God. We're saying, no, Christ has won a victory. Now let's, let's, let's proclaim that victory to a, a, a lost and broken world and draw them into the victory of Christ. And it all starts with remembering that we have a God who fought for us, that Christ fought for us and he won. We have a God who fought for us. But this is not just past, this is also present. We have a God who is fighting for us. Too often Christians restrict the work of God to the cross and to glory when Christ returns. They think of God's work in in their lives as Jesus saved me and Jesus is coming back to rescue me. But in the middle, I'm kind of on my own. We live as practical atheists. What this says actually is, no, Christians are are called to remember that this is a present instruction that God is worth fighting for you and so we can walk in peace and confidence. Let's hear Moses' words again that should ring in our ears as we think about all the trials of our lives. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Remember those words silent means to be still. The Lord will fight for you. What what you need to see is you have a God who is constantly working on your behalf. Remember, they they had the death looming over them as the Egyptian army crosses the horizon. And at that moment, it would be so easy to fear. But the only way you can't fear, the only way they should, effectively, the the only way to the right response, which is to silently, stillly trust the living God that he will work out his purposes, is to remember that you have a God who fights for you. We've forgotten the presence and activity of God. Just as they forgot then, that God would promise that he would work through them, so easily we are similarly foolish. 
We walk as if God is not present with us, that God is not powerfully at work in our lives. We've forgotten his power. As we forget the mighty warrior, we become warriors with an O. Well, worry, worry, and kind of allowing that anxiety to take over our lives. Now, as I said before, we will have a battle with anxiety. I'm not saying that, that, that we will perhaps ever get to a complete absence of anxiety, but as we forget the power of God, so easily anxiety takes over our lives. Also, I think prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is always, almost always a sign that we've forgotten the power of God. Because if we really believe God is powerful, then we would pray. Power, we've forgotten the power, we've forgotten the presence. We've forgotten the promise that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We forget that we forget that he promises he'll be present with us. So sometimes we feel his absence. Maybe you go through a trial in life and you feel like it's really difficult. Or maybe you are just like going through a spiritual dry patch, so to speak, and you, and you feel some level of absence. At that moment, you've forgotten that he promises, I will be with you to the very end. I, will, I promise I put my spirit in you. I'm not saying that you can't pursue his spirit and there isn't a kind of greater measure of pursuing his presence, but he promises always, now that he's taken control of your life, now that his flag has been planted in you, so to speak, his presence will be with you. And it's not just a promise of a warm and fuzzy feeling. As much as the presence of the spirit is a wonderful, liberating experience, it's a promise of his working in us and through us. We've forgotten his character how often we forget that God is a good father. There are all sorts of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because we're projecting our negative experience of our father onto a, a holy God who is a good father. So we don't even know what good father means. Or maybe we just go through trials in life and we think that goodness means that we shouldn't go through trials. And therefore we think, well, he's not good. No, it means he's good in the trials. It means he's good to sustain you in the trials. It means every, every trial you go through, God is sufficient to lead you through that. And actually, even those trials are part of his disciplining plan in your life. We've forgotten his goodness. We've forgotten that he's the God who provides manna in the wilderness, who provides bread to keep you going. It doesn't mean that he's going to bring an end to that trial tomorrow. This shouldn't be read as a kind of prosperity verse where you kind of hold on to this and say, well, God should remove all trials from my life. But it means he'll provide for you in the desert. He'll give you the bread you need. He'll give you the water from the rock as he goes on to show them in the next few chapters. So it doesn't mean prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean passivity. This is true in this moment that he's telling them not to do anything. Later on, he tells them to fight. But it's always under his vision of sovereign power. It doesn't mean you won't suffer, but he will be with you in weakness. And that's really the first implication I would want to drive home to you this morning We live in a world that puts a great rhetoric on strength, the value of strength. And this means, actually, you can be weak. You think you see this in the church sometimes? You think, I I need to be strong. If I'm a believer, I need to feel strong. And sometimes we feel weak. Often we feel weak. There's a great rhetoric around, you know, you see it here, the rhetoric around strong women. I'm not making a gender point. I'm just saying that that strength is a value in our culture. It's it's seen as a a great attribute. What about weak men and women? What about knowing the reality of our weakness, our fallibility, our fallenness, our tiredness, the fact that we are human beings who get tired and exhausted and sometimes even burnt out? Is our theology only one that allows us and gives us space to be strong? What do we do when we feel weak? Well, the Bible is full of an expectation that at times we're going to feel weak. Look at Paul. I was, I was feeling weak myself this week <laughs> on Wednesday. And uh, I was uh, reading, um, I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
this wonderful tonic to my soul at that moment. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. This is Paul speaking. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Instead, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. If you ever feel like you're despairing of life itself and you just want to give up, Paul's been there. Doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you're feeling weak. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He's drawing back to Christ's deliverance from death on the cross. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul has an an active expectation, even though he's feeling really rotten at the end of himself, destroyed by a life of pursuing and, and pouring himself out for the gospel pouring yourself out on your children, pouring yourself out on your neighbours, on your colleagues, or whatever else is making you feel weak. He says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul has an expectation that even as he feels weak, God will take him through this trial. We serve in 1 Peter, it talks about serving through the strength that God supplies. My suspicion is sometimes God wants us precisely to feel weak because it's in that weakness that we will cry out to him, that we will say, Lord, I need you, just as the people of Israel cried out to him in that moment as the chariots came over. The first thing they did was right. They cried out to him. Sometimes that's what the Lord wants. About all the time, the Lord wants us in a posture of walking in humility, recognizing our weakness and our dependence on him so that we might draw on the strength that he provides, so that we might walk in conscious dependence. I'm not saying God wants you in a a heap over here just saying, I'm weak and I'm, woe is me, so that you walk in the weakness, in, in the reality of weakness, but in the strength that the Lord provides. Glorify God in your weakness. Cry out to the Lord when you're walking through trials because it glorifies him. But it means more than that, just that weakness is okay. It means that Christ is working in you and for you. He's interceding for you before the Father. He's drawn towards the sin in your life and he wants to root it out. Christ is fighting for you in the sense that he is fighting the fight against sin in your life and for your good. When you walk through sin, when you experience sin in your life, often you, at that moment, what do you do? You withdraw from God. You feel like a, someone with a kind of awful skin disease that they didn't want anyone to see. And they think, well, the last thing is God wants to be near me because I've sinned. Actually, what we forget is that Christ's heart is towards our sin. He desi- Christ desires to root out the sin in your life more than you want to root it out. You have a doctor who sees the sickness and is drawn towards that. Not to uh, uh, say, that's great, carry on as you are, but to bring healing and restoration. Christ is committed to your, uh, the battle against sin more than you are. Liberating, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Ephesians 5, we, I was at a wedding yesterday, praise God, Andrew and Esther, if you know them, they got married yesterday, very excited, um, began married life together. And I, um, in the sermon, reminded uh, Andrew, the husband, um, of this wonderful vision in Ephesians 5, which is it's a weighty calling for husbands, but it's also a picture of Christ's love for the church. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without 
blemish. Now, you can talk about that as an instruction for husbands, and husbands feel the weight of that instruction. But even more than that, it's a picture of Christ. It's saying Christ sees his church as his bride. He, see, he wants to make her holy and without blemish. He's committed to purifying and sanctifying and beautifying his wife after he's won her. You know, think about the typical, you know, a woman gets beautiful for her wedding day. That's the kind of pinnacle of her beauty. No, it's the opposite. Christ wins you to him. He draw, takes you out of those filthy rags, gives you these new spotless robes of redemption, and then makes you beautiful, then works for your beauty that you might be the holy and spotless bride that glorifies him when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Christ is commit, more committed to you. He's fighting for your holiness. He's committed to rooting out the sin in your life. But it's not just sin. This picture of God fighting for you is about remembering the great majesty and sovereignty of God in every area of our lives. It means that Christians can walk through trials, walk through difficulties with a shalom, with a peace. With people who are learning to trust. Learning, not learnt, learning to trust. Not just trusting him for our salvation, not just trusting him for our, um, that he's forgiven us on the cross, but trusting him for all sorts of things. Think about Matthew 6, where he talks about how the father provides for the, um, provides for the birds or, or looks, after the, looks after the flowers of the field. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of the Lord's sovereign provision. If you're worrying about your finances, do you believe you have a God who's actively working for your good? Who, who, and he says, what? Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll provide all things. Not that he'll provide a prosperity, but he will give you everything you need. Paraphrase. Go back and look at it precisely after the service. Or Hebrews 12 speaks about God's, um, God's work through the trials of our lives. That actually he puts trials in our lives to discipline us and to shape us. As you go through suffering, you don't withdraw from God and resentfully raise your fist saying, God, why have you visited this suffering in my life? Instead you say, God, I trust you that you are good and that you will work out your good purposes through this trial so that I might worship you and depend on you and glorify you. And sometimes you don't know what those purposes are, but you have to trust that he has got good purposes for that trial, hard as it may feel at times. Or your children. If you're a, child, if you're a parent, I'm almost certain you have lost sleep at some point because of your children. Probably because they were learning to sleep, but eventually, as you get older, they're losing sleep over their different issues in life because you love them. If you're a parent, you need to remember, as much as God has called you to an active responsibility of caring them and raising them and helping them to become everything God's called them to be, that God is in charge of your children's life, that he is sovereign and he will sovereignly work out his purposes in them through you, not denying your active work in this, but you can trust him because God loves your children even more than, he loves you, more than you love them and he is in charge, he is sovereign. He's fighting for them. He's the God who fights. We have responsibility, but we need not have angst. So this is really pointing to kind of two different responses to trials in our lives. You have the first response of the people of Israel. They cry out. They resentfully blame God. They say, what are we doing? Why have you brought us here? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's give up on this whole God thing. Some of you have done that, haven't you? When you're going through trials, you want to feel like just giving up on God and walking away from it because it's too difficult. You say, why have you brought me here? Let's go back. I want to go back and be without you. Or just feel like that silent bitterness and frustration with God that just kind of underlying, like feeling a hard done by because of the situations he's put you in. So you can have the, you can have the Hebrew response, the, the first response that we saw from the people of Israel, or you can have the response that he calls the people to. It says, no, be silent, be still. Learn to trust him. 
Learn to trust in his sovereignty. Learn to trust in his provision. Learn to trust in his active work in your life for your flourishing. So fear is is not necessarily the enemy here. Anxiety is not necessarily the enemy. Instead, it's what you do with that. It's what you do with the anxiety. That every day as you experience anxiety, all sorts of different reasons, you use it as a way to to draw you to your knees (laughs) that says, God, I need you. I feel anxious about this. I'm struggling to trust you in this. Lord, I need you. But let every anxiety draw you to your knees rather than away from the presence of God. So we've seen his past work. He's fight, he fought for us and fought for us on the cross. He's fighting for us now. And finally, we are going to see his victory. We celebrate the coming victory of the king. He will defeat all evil on this world, in this world one day. You know, this amazing anthem that we will hopefully get a chance to look at in the future. Uh, chapter 15 He speaks, after this great victory, after they've seen God's great majesty and power, they then start singing. They say, the people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. What what they're saying is, we've seen the Lord's victory, and so all the people around who we're going to face as their opponents know that you are coming, and they're scared. And it's that confidence of victory that is just full of, you read Exodus chapter 15 after this, you'll see that they're they're so grateful and they're so confident of the Lord's victory to come. That is something of a flavor of what God wants the the people of God to look like now that they know he's fighting for them and they're confident of his victory, that one day they're gripped by that beautiful image in Revelation chapter 19 when, it's, when we see this amazing image of Christ when he's coming back. It says, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. As we see evil and sin flourishing in this world, as we see injustice and mistreatment, we remember that the coming victory of Christ that there is a one coming who will be on a white horse, who will, be that, will have that sword of judgment coming to bring an end to injustice, an end to, to slavery, an end to racism, an end to misery, an end to suffering, an end to um, mistreatment and misogyny and uh, all forms of evil in our culture. We, we, we walk forward like the people of God through the present time of trials, through the difficulties that we're facing now, and through a world marred by sin with a confidence that Christ is coming back to bring his complete victory. So stand firm, saints. Stand firm. That is the resounding call of this passage. Be still, walk in peace, in confidence in the living God. It's the the resounding call of the New Testament. As he talks about this great spiritual battle, what does he say? Stand firm. Walk forward in a holy confidence, in a confidence that even as we experience trials now, we have a victorious king who 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 has fought for us on the cross, who is fighting for us now, sovereignly at work in our lives, and one day will bring about a complete victory. 
It means we grieve suffering in the world. We don't deny the reality of suffering in our lives or in other lives. It doesn't mean we don't have a compassion. It doesn't mean we want, don't want to extend the mission of God and bring the shalom of God in, to our neighbors and our friends and across lands and seas. We, want, we long for the victory of God to be felt by all people in this world. But in the meantime, we continue to walk forward with a posture of peace and shalom because we trust the living God who fought for us, who fights for us, and who one day will see his victory in all its glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Keep walking. The victory has been won. One of the band come up. I want, to, I, I, I want to accept as we come into this now, this time of worship, we're going to be in different places. Some of you, you want to ask God to really work in the, the past victory, the knowledge of his forgiveness, the knowledge of his salvation, the knowledge that he is reigning and that sin will not have the last word. Some of you may be working through the reality that he is sovereign in your life. And for some of you, you just need to remember and hang on that one day Christ is coming and he'll bring his victory completely. Wherever you're at, I just want to invite God to work in that. And then we'll, and then we'll worship. Lord, we want to just come and bow before you and recognize your sovereignty, recognize your great power, recognize even sometimes our questions where we say, you're sovereign, but this is going on, Lord, and I don't understand it. Or, Lord, I don't understand this suffering or this thing that's happening over there. And so, Lord, we want to come and recognize your power together, to recognize your victory that you won on the cross that you have brought your victory into our lives, that you've brought us through the rivers of judgment. you brought us through and you saved us, Lord. And you're continuing to work now. You're continuing to fight sin in our lives. We just want to be so, we want to express our gratitude that you are sovereignly at work. We want to come and kneel before you and just glory at your power, <laughs> your victory. And thank you for that power and victory. Give us your shalom, Lord. Give us your peace, but we lack your peace. Help us to appropriate that reality every day, Lord, that our lives might more and more reflect the reality that you are fighting for us, that you are our great warrior God. We trust you, Lord. We love you. We thank you that we can follow you now. Amen.